Good morning to everybody. Thank you, Bharat. It's uh, so happy to see so many familiar faces. Um, it's a great opportunity for me to meet uh, some of you. And also, um, like Bharat mentioned, I'm going to share the podium with two distinguished civil society representatives from Sri Lanka. It itself is a manifestation of the landmark changes that has taken place in Sri Lanka since January uh, this year. That was an election that uh, is considered by many, especially in this part of the world, as uh, an expression of the strength of Sri Lanka's democracy. Bharat told me uh, beforehand that this is not going to be a monologue, this is going to be a conversation. So uh, I'm trying to keep my remarks as brief as possible so that we can have a conversation because there are experts of Sri Lanka in this, in this, in this uh, audience. Sri Lanka is an island nation. And uh, since time immemorial, we are part of the world's history and legend in South Asia. And I found uh, there is no better expression to prove that with regard to our location than when I recently visited the headquarter, headquarters of the National Geographic. I saw, uh, I think, late 19th or early 20th century big paintings of the world, Orient and the Occident. Very big paintings on the headquarters. Right in the middle of the Orient is Sri Lanka, right in the middle. Now that's what we were at that time and what, that's what we are today. So the location has given us both opportunity and challenge. Economic opportunity, economic challenge, less challenge than economy. Opportunity in many other fields. So that is the uh, reflection of uh, our location as an island nation. I, I, I like statistics, so I want to give you some statistics to uh, you know, give a flavor of what we are. Seas, world seas cover 70% of, uh, of the globe, 7 tenths of the globe is sea. And 6 tenths, that is 60% of the borders are sea coast, or the world sea coast. Then, very importantly, 9 out of 10 people on the planet live on the coasts. 90% of the people live on the coasts. And 90% of the world trade is transported by ocean atop containerized cargoes. And 80% uh, of the world seaborne oil transits through Indian Ocean choke points. And that they just go by Sri Lanka. And uh, the world's top containerized cargo users, four, top four, except USA, is in Asia. Who are they? China, Japan, and South Korea. So sea is the most important uh, domain 
maritime domain is an important thing for the human's future. I can go on talking about that because the deep sea resources are still untouched. Sri Lanka took a leading role those days with regard to the law of the sea, precisely because we realized the sea is our resource and challenge. And so Sri Lanka's location is something we have inherited and we need to perhaps exploit for the goodness, for, for the better, for the benefit of our people, our region and the world. Now, we are in Asia among two, uh, now I just mentioned three major powers who are top containerized cargo users, China, Japan and, and South Korea. There's India. India is just starting, just starting. I have been there four and a half years. I have seen the kind of revolution that Mr. Modi brought in. When India is really in the scene, a lot of things will change. Because it's, uh, that's another topic. So that's the, that is where Sri Lanka is today, in that, in that region. And let me now briefly touch upon what Sri Lanka and US. Sri Lanka, US is the modern world's oldest democracy. And Sri Lanka arguably is the oldest democracy in South Asia, started voting in 1931, before the independence, both males and females. And we have unbroken tradition of democracy, unbroken tradition without any involvement by sometimes other forces of, of disturbance. And we have, uh, that's a very important link between this country and Sri Lanka, democratic practice. Sri Lanka is a maritime nation because of the nature of the country. And the United States is the most powerful maritime nation in the world. And it will remain so to the foreseeable future, to my mind, for, the, for a long period, 21st century for sure. So we have a certain sense of uh, natural interest and natural affinity in that sense. But there's something very more, one more important thing. We are a multicultural, multi-ethnic nation, both. But of course, there is a certain sense of uh, predominant culture that pervades throughout the country. You have, we have. Don't ask me to define what it is. It's, everyone knows what it is like. Um, so that's uh, our, and, and everything stems from that. We, therefore, have to be very mindful that in US, we have a friend. We have a country which can help us to gain ascendancy both in terms of economic and social progress because we share certain common values and common traits. And that's the basis on which the government that was elected in January this year has started working with the rest of the world, including this country. And we have been very encouraged by 
the progress that we have made so far. We have had highest, highest levels of laudatory remarks on President Sirisena's achievements. We have had Secretary Kerry visiting us last, uh, last, last month, just about the time the WISAC was celebrated. A first visit, official visit by your Secretary of State after 42 years. That's a long time that we have missing US in our midst. And we have plans to upgrade, to work towards better cooperation with the United States. And I want to touch up, touch up briefly on the achievements of this government. Very simple, because it's so, so many. They had 100-day programs. There was a promise that 100-day uh, would make Sri Lanka promote good governance, promote rule of law, promote independent institutions, promote accountability, promote human rights, all that. Government has kept promises, all that. Promises have been kept. Of course, what has yet to happen is the parliamentary election, and that's a million dollar question. Everybody's asking when. I thought this morning, but no, it didn't happen. Uh, but it should, because we expect there should be a new government by September this year. 19th Amendment of the Constitution is a landmark piece. Because that constitution rebalance our constitutional structure to make it robust and to make it more balanced in a manner that the power is shared by the executive, legislative, and the judicial branches. Constitution that we had hitherto until from 78 to until 78 until recently was a constitution that was bordering on real authoritarian power, made worse by the 18th Amendment. And we really had an authoritarian constitution, and it's not a secret. So we have rebalanced and had created several things. I want to briefly touch upon what 19th Amendment was, because I took down some uh, because many people would not know what it is. I thought I should, I should, I should uh, um, say a few things about that. Repeal of 18th Amendment, uh, in particular the absence of term limits on holding presidential office by specific disqualification of persons who have been twice elected to such office and are dual citizens. Uh, term of president and the parliament was reduced by five years. Duties of president are outlined and include promotion of national reconciliation and in integration. And president is responsible to the parliament and cannot dissolve parliament at his own discretion during the four and a half years. Earlier, president could just dismiss anyone, anybody. So powerful executive we had. The re-establishment of independent commissions, and they include election commission, public service commission, national police commission, audit service commission, human rights commission, commission to investigate allegations of bribery and corruption, finance commission, delimitation commission, and national procurement commission. All 
will be selected by the Constitutional Council to approve persons for this important office and to, and to recommend. So authority president only had appointing all these high officers are gone. So the public service, judicial service, all the government institutions should become in time to come independent as it should be in a democracy. Inclusion of citizens' right to information is become a part of constitutional, part of the constitution. That is, citizens' right to information uphold democratic principles and transparency and accountability. There should be a, a bill that coming as a right to information bill as a follow-up. Then limitation of the size of the cabinet, very important thing for a developing country. We had jumbo cabinets, very well known, very big cabinets political deals and then cabinet expands. Uh, cabinet size will be 30, except in the transitional phase of the next government, which is called government of national unity, which can go up to 45. Only next cabinet will be 45, but after that it is, constitution says, maximum 30. Urgent bills cannot be uh, will not be allowed. It will require 14 days notice. So these are the highlights of the 19th Amendment. And citizens and everybody in Sri Lanka are, I think, very happy. So there's a national consensus. This was adopted by whole of parliament except one person who was voting against. Everybody, everybody accepted this constitution. Uh, of course, we have now struggling with what is called 20th Amendment, which is seeking to uh, um, seeking to have a new electoral mechanism to elect legislature. That's uh, certain provisions are gazetted, but I my understanding it will go through a lot of work. There's no national consensus easy on that. Smaller parties have one view, big parties have another view, but basic contours are currently we are having what is called proportional representation system. Every every electorate is proportional, district-wide proportional representation. It will turn into a hybrid system like in Germany, partly part first past the post on the base of constituencies, rest uh, another another amount, proportional representation, and of course few nationalist members. That's work in progress. Then very briefly about the recent uh, progress made by the government in terms of reconciliation. Reconciliation is uh, taken by this government as a very important phenomenon since we, since uh, Colombo is still not sleeping, that's a problem. <laughs> Uh, this is the window that we have to work in Colum with Colombo. Uh, and I'm sure those who have there, so this window, uh, they try to get us and we try to get them. So, um, Recent reconciliation is considered by this government, reconciliation as a, as a very important, uh, very important um, aspect of the governance. Since 
2009, end of the violent part of the conflict. Now, in that, the government has taken, you know that, but I want to highlight them, few very important steps. And they are continuing. One is the what's called the peace declaration that we um, um, very important thing is that we are in in at the national day of two, uh, this year in February. Government made a what's called a peace declaration, recognizing that during the conflict period, all Sri Lankans, not only soldiers, all Sri Lankans suffered and all Sri Lankans died, and therefore we should remember all of them in a manner that we should not allow such phenomena to repeat in the country. Of course, these are not the words, but that's the spirit of that. Um, then, Recently, on the day that we used to have what's called a Victory Day celebration for the armed forces, instead of that, we had what we call the War Heroes Remembrance Day. It's called basically Remembrance Day. Perhaps we are coming close to what you have as Memorial Day. Um, and in that occasion, President addressing the security forces said, Development is not enough for reconciliation. Development and reconciliation must go hand in hand. To win hearts and minds of the people is equally important. So development and reconciliation is the slogan for the security forces also. So those two are very important um, um, elements in the policy. And there are many things have, have taken place. Uh, and I, I think we'll discuss that later. Um, but there are key issues that government is focusing on in this regard. One is missing persons, retainees, and accountability issues. These are being very seriously considered to find solution. Uh, before I, I think I spoke too much about Sri Lanka, now I'll, I'll talk a little bit of Asia in a sense that what I think of uh, our region than where Sri Lanka and our region is. Sri Lanka is at the hub of, as a, uh, is natu natural hub of the subcontinent, right in the middle of the sea lanes. So our economic prosperity is linked to the prosperity of our subcontinent. If Indian economy, for instance, grow well, we also grow, pick up quickly. And that has been very clear for us. So we are linked with the subcontinent in a manner that not only our, so, uh, our, our, both our economic and social destinies are interlinked and interconnected. And the region is now becoming, a, has not becoming, has become a democratic region with each and every South Asian nation having a democracy of sorts. Of course, quality of the democracy may vary, but all, including Bhutan, is having a democracy today. So we have a democratic practice entrenched in our South Asian region. Uh, 
Then we have also increasingly South Asian region is becoming educated region. Um, in India, uh, Sri Lanka, of course, a leader, Sri Lanka Maldives is very high in illiteracy rate. We have had that for long years. But others are catching up very fast, very fast. India is catching up very fast. I have observed that. As a result, there is a large group of people in our part of the world whose intention, whose aspiration is to have upward mobility. Upward mobility is what they demand from their government. Avenues for upward mobility. This, is, this demand is felt on the ground in our part of the world. And ideologies based on ethnic superiority or, or other social ideologies becoming secondary. I have seen this, something interesting, that expatriate communities of our, our origin who are living in this part of the world have ideologies based on a very different set of values, sometimes based on separatism. Separatist identity is what is most important for them. Whereas if we look at the people who are living on the ground in our part of the world, I have seen to my own experience for them, number one, upward mobility, social and economic. Not, not this uh, great ideas of uh, grandeur of your own ethnic group or um, that or, or, the, or the ideology of uh, economic ideology based on left of center politics, no, those are, those are not more because we are so interconnected in our region. And in Sri Lanka, almost everyone owns a telephone, mobile, almost everybody, even a beggar would have sometimes. I'm not joking, it's serious, you know, uh, because that's so, so cheap is the mobile technology, now it can approach. So interconnection is there. So therefore, this is uh, so we in South Asia have this uh, challenge to provide avenues for up the desire for upward mobility of our people. And person who understood this very well is today the Prime Minister of India, Mr. Narendra Modi. And I wish, and we all wish in our region that he succeeds because if Indian economy picks up, we'll also pick up we'll get benefit out of that. And it's vice versa. And Sri Lanka's ports, deep ports, are situated right at the right place to benefit from expansion of trade in the region. Colombo port today handles 80% of Colombo ports, 70% of Colombo port transshipment is to India. Hambantata port has become the transshipment hub for Indian vehicles. That's where the, all the Indian vehicles come and do the distribution. Come on to the port. So these where things are. I think I have done enough, isn't it? Because uh, I'm sorry that if I take up too much time. But uh, well, I'll then, well, after the others listen, I, I'm very happy to have a, a conversation. Thank you. Sorry, I should have told this before. After the ambassador, we'll have the two representatives of the civil society, uh, the distinguished representatives. First will be Jeevan, um, and next will be Danya. They'll speak for around five to seven minutes, and then we'll just um, enter into Q&A. Jeevan.
Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, Bharat as well as Nazia and colleagues for putting this together, and I'm happy to be back at the Atlantic Council. We dropped in late last year, and uh, appreciate the distinguished participants this morning as well. Uh, as Bharat mentioned, I'll speak briefly and my colleague will follow. Uh, I'll work, look at more on the reconciliation type of issues and my colleague will look at the displacement issues in Sri Lanka. Uh, the first part of my comments would come more from a South Asian perspective. Uh, it seemed just right being uh, the South Asia center that we should come in from that angle. And my last part would be very much on what could be done or should be done back at back in Sri Lanka. Uh, at the risk of saying something which you all may already know, if you would bear with me, uh, by way of uh, introduction, at independence, which is 48, uh, it began from a critique's point of view as exclusivist identity politics, uh, deep-rooted party rivalries, and imbalances in the sharing of political power and repeated failures of resolution and mediation. Uh, a proof of that is that 10 years after independence, 58, we regrettably had a first outbreak of violence. And that led to a series, as we know. Historically, and again regrettably, the first wave was 1983 to 87, second was 1990 to 1994, third was 95 to 2002, and fourth was 2006 to 2009, and we hope it is the end, we hope. It is not one straight line of wars, absolutely not. Each was attempted to be quelled with political solutions, and we have really had extraordinary models on the table, fantastic models. Uh, in fact, some of our best, and my own personal preference, we picked up on the best of Nepal, South Africa, Canada, um, all of that. And the models are on the table. And I think, as Ambassador mentioned, uh, if all goes according to the script, post-elections and there's a national government, the one of the agenda items is finding a lasting solution. Uh, and again, by way of reference, the, the signposted, the big efforts was 1985, Thimpu in Bhutan, the 13th Amendment in 87, then a parliamentary select committee in 91. Uh, there was an e two efforts of the then government in 2006, and then what is called the All-Party Representatives Committee. Uh, and for students of Sri Lankan politics, the committee report is a brilliant piece of work. Uh, the conflict obviously had a human cost as well as a physical cost. One uh, number of ones was in displacement, uh, at one point, we topped two million internally displaced. We have a sad legacy of the missing. And uh, as you know from 2012, uh, allegations of improper use of force at the end of the war. As our ambassador mentioned, in recent uh, public pronouncements, our foreign minister, and I, these are my own sort of pickups on some things he've said, uh, this was coming out of a meeting when Secretary Kerry was in Colombo, he looked at the prevention of isolation of the country, prevention of recurrence of conflict, uh, looking at the best that the world has to offer in terms of sustainable progress and development. Secretary Kerry spoke about assistance 
on the return of land, trying to find answers for disappeared people, cooperation on justice and accountability, advance of human rights within the country and around the world. That was interesting, saying, come with us, can we look at others as well. High Commissioner Zaidi at the Human Rights Com Com Commission recently, amongst many things on Sri Lanka, recommended that the government consult broadly with victims and their families. That was, I thought, very interesting. Uh, very quickly, now I moved to South Asia and looking at uh, something called a Statement of Principles of Minorities, which we tabled long years ago on the work in the, at the Working Group of Minorities. At, yes, we looked at the concept of minorities slightly differently. And to us, for some of us South Asians, it includes groups of those who are disadvantaged, excluded, marginalized, stateless, or disenfranchised. So it's not just primarily religious, ethnic, or something like that. It's about those groups who tend to get sidelined, or who feel that they've been sidelined. Obviously, their characteristics have to be taken on board in terms of constitutions, and their characteristics have to be promoted, possibly insufficiently at the time within South Asia. We need to be looking at that. The issues of human rights and uh, the manners in which, manner in which we should be addressing it now transcends states. I don't speak for the government. I speak in terms of what we should be doing ourselves. So it's about concerns of every segment of society within South Asia. It's not just of governments. And it's not about recommendations only to government. Devolution of power, autonomy, is key. And I think everybody uh, wants a measure of being able to determine their identity and their progress. Again, that's a tough, tough call in terms of how do you accommodate competing ideologies and nationalisms uh, within countries and ensure that the country doesn't break up into millions of pieces. Uh, I mentioned the fact that it's not that we are short of ideas. It's just that we couldn't put a, put a break on the conflict and pick up on the politics. But the, the text of my comments will be with Atlantic Council, and you can get a full text of it later. I refer to a particular address of our, one of our presidents 20 years back. Uh, if, if and when you wish to refer, please have a look at it. Brilliant, uh, absolutely not short of any ideas. 20 years back, what she wanted done for the country. And I think all what we need to do, we knew then, but we just couldn't get it done. The conflict simply didn't stop then. Very quickly, coming back to the end, we're looking at uh, the current framework on reconciliation picks up on something called the Lessons Learned and Reconciliation Committee, which had made several recommendations. It covers a lot of ground. Some of the key ones um, from a perspective outside of government, I did mention, for instance, the missing. The ICRC in its 2013 uh, annual reports talks about, 30, about 13,000 missing. Our current uh, government-appointed commission has about 21,000, of which about 4,000-plus are state uh, armed forces personnel who was reported missing. So we have the missing on the one hand, and we also have what is called the disappeared on the other. Uh, and so uncovering the truth of all of that, possibly bifurcating the missing from the rest, and the rest in terms of improper use and issues of what is called termed accountability, maybe something that we'll begin to see in the time to come. So looking at the truth, uh, it is a long war. And let's say 
from a Tamil perspective, we had so many Tamil groups at one point, 28 or 38, and it came down to about one or two at the end. It didn't happen peacefully, absolutely not. People died, people exiled, they fled. Many things happened, and I think it's important to ask what happened internally. We haven't done enough of that simply haven't done enough of that. If you wish to prevent a recurrence of conflict, you have to really get to the point of what happened. And all wars are gri grisly, and many wars have uh, a dark side to it, and ours was no better. There was a dark side to our conflict, and we need to really take ownership, responsibility, and talk about it. And I think that is some of the things, things that we have to do. And here, the political parties, cannot say that the government of the day has to take responsibility, absolutely not. For such a long time, 30 plus years, there is enormous shared responsibility across the country amongst many, many groups. And we have to get to that point. We haven't gone there yet, because the traditional practice to tell the government of the day, you take responsibility, you underwrite, you're the life insurer for the whole country. No, I don't think it works that way. Uh, Coming out of this, it doesn't mean that you just look at only the truth. I think you'll need to ra sadly deal with potential crimes and how do we do, it, do that. Those are things we'll have to be looking at in time to come. Going forward, the one, the one blue book, white book, or whatever you call it, the Lessons Learned Reconciliation Report, was written at a time straight after the end of the conflict. Five years hence, four years hence, I think, there is nothing in it about youth. Youth are the future. How can you not talk about the future? If you're going to do that, you'll have to deal with what the youth want today and tomorrow. So we'd like to look at that, looking at youth, looking at how development connects with recovery, how development is equitable, how it will not lead to creating group disparities, and how it will lead to social cohesion in time to come. There's also the role of center and province. It's not just the business of the center. There are provinces, we, and the provinces have to play a role. They have budgets, they have elected representatives, they have cadre. It is not for them to just push pens and paper. They have a job to do. We haven't seen enough of that. Civil society groups need to also take responsibility for what we can do for this country. And finally, there's several policy recommendations, but one thing I think is a lesson to prevent recurrence of conflict is potentially what is called a policy on reconciliation with institutional mechanisms. There are ideas, it's a multi-partisan group, drew it up, and it's on the table to be attended to. I'll close at that, and uh, my colleague will take up the next issues. Thank you. Good morning to you all. <coughs> I join my colleague uh, Jeevan in thanking Atlantic Council for hosting this meeting. <coughs> I will be speaking on the end of displacement. Okay, is that better? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> um, the Sri Lankan experience has its own unique features due to the long and protracted nature of conflict and displacement in the country. Coming out of a war which was vicious and costly, those who suffered mostly were civilians with long and bitter experiences. Therefore, recovery required a holistic approach and one able to manage infinite needs with finite resources. 
Obstacles to sustainable return have included inadequate demining of return areas, including agricultural lands, which are, work, which are critical for rebuilding livelihoods, damaged or destroyed homes, and public infrastructure. Private lands occupied by state military or earmarked for commercial use, and the lack of sufficient opportunities for sustainable livelihood, to name a few. As a result, many IDPs were displaced to host families or to temporary transit camps for protracted periods of time. Following the end of war uh, with the LTT in May 2009, the government of Sri Lanka gave priority to the return of the estimated 280,000 individuals internally displaced between April 2008 and May 2009. In addition, there were over 220,000 old IDPs displaced prior to April 2008. Another large component of the old IDP caseload comprises at least 65,000 northern Muslim IDPs who have been living in protracted displacement since 1990. As at present, the conflict displaced include all returnees who have been resettled between 2009 in 2015, approximately 794,000 individuals. Persons who have taken refuge in South India in 1983 and wish to return estimated at 35,000 people, and those remaining yet as IDPs in either welfare camps or with host families estimated at 44,000 people. With the assumption of the office of the new government in January 2015, priority was given to the resettlement of remaining protracted IDPs. The release of private lands acquired by the state was also prioritized and up to date over 1,831 acres of land has been released uh, and 1,200 families been resettled. Delivery of practical measures ensuring durable solutions for those who have returned is focused on with renewed effort and needs of returning communities being looked into. Yet knowing when internal displacement ends is important to determine when national as well as international responsibility, attention and resources should shift from specific focuses on the needs and vulnerability of IDPs to a holistic community-wide approach of rehabilitation and development of a society as a whole. Uh, the conditions necessary to achieve durable solutions for IDPs and returning communities allowing them to regain normal lives include physical security, access to and restitution of property, reconstruction of houses or compensation for lost property, measures ensuring the sustainability of the solution, primarily restoration of and non-discriminatory access to livelihoods and basic services, particularly in the area of health, education, safe water and sanitation, full protection of the law and access to national and local protection mechanisms, including police, courts and restored access to personal documentation. Through various mechanisms and initiatives, much work has been done uh, to enable resettlement, supported by the recommendations of the LLRC. A mechanism to address issues of disappearances was set up and has presently recorded over 20,000 cases and has initiated a program with the Ministry of External Affairs with, to support psychosocial and other basic needs uh, to help these families. Yet, despite large-scale infrastructure development and assistance programs, 
many of those who have returned still face assistance needs and thus need support to achieve durable solutions to their displacement. Many families and communities experience a dependency syndrome <clears throat> and a concerted effort needs to take place to engage communities, particularly youth, through improved consultation and participation. A clear disparity is seen in the income levels in returnee families. Through recent studies, it was confirmed that 46% of families adopted coping strategies to make ends meet, namely borrowing food, money, limiting their food intake due to lack of purchasing power, relying on assistance from NGO and government social welfare programs. More than 60% of these families exist on less than $1.250 a day with a monthly income of less than rupees 10,000. Farming is a key resource. Farming is a, a key livelihood option in most northern districts, but wage and salaries are the main source of income for most returnee families. Yet 63% confirmed that their earnings were insufficient to meet their basic needs. Though a total of 104,312 houses have been constructed, a further 75,000 houses are required. Presently, only 87 kilometers have been cleared, while 76 square kilometers remain to be cleared. In conclusion, to enable the end of displacement, attention is needed, if landless, to lands of their preference, basic needs of housing, sustainable livelihood, nutrition, drinking water and sanitation, safety and protection, access to community infrastructure, health care, education and vital documentation, whilst responding creatively to women-headed households, children, the elderly, persons with disabilities or chronic illnesses, and those differently abled. Addressing multiple layers of vulnerability and discrimination require particular attention. Whilst this is accepted in theory, the specific concerns and needs of those groups are still often overlooked in practice. Bridging the gap between emergency assistance and long-term reconstruction and development requires flexible funding mechanisms as well as a readiness by humanitarian development actors to work hand in hand. Sri Lanka has recognized that achieving social cohesion is contingent on access to education, economic activities and employment, justice and legal resources, safe and secure social environment, safe and secure physical environment, political participation and belonging and responsibility. If Sri Lanka were to erase the original causes of displacement due to conflict to end displacement, it is important and vital to focus on peace and social cohesion, within which lies the circumstances and issues of missing persons and allegations of disappearances after surrender, arrest, the scale of circumstances of death and injury to civilians, as well as damage to property during the period of conflict, which would enable compensation, compensatory treatment for its victims. Thank you. Thank you all. It's a lot of, lot of issues on the table, and I don't know if 30 minutes will be enough. 
but we'll start with I'll start with you. And I think you briefly touched a number of issues. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, sitting in Colombo, with all the great game that's being played in Asia, what is your conceptualization of the regional order? Where, how would you like to see the region progressing economically, diplomatically, and strategically? First, as I mentioned, sea around Sri Lanka is something, it's our resource. For since time immemorial, we have lived on that resource. So we want to have a maritime domain that is peaceful and stable, good enough to have sustained, uninterrupted business for us and for the region. We, Sri Lanka, is willing to contribute to any effort towards that, ranging from our earliest uh, proposal in the UN 1970s, making Sri Lanka, Indian Ocean a zone of peace, which never took off. It's stuck in the UN to something that some folks today talk about uh, uh, security architect architecture in the Indian Ocean uh, that we built together with the regional and the extra-regional users in a manner that ocean remains stable and not a theater of confrontation. That's Sri Lanka's objective. We are willing to work on that with anyone. But uh, we recognize, on the other hand, there are competing interests. India's southern flank is in the Indian Ocean. I think northern flank is perhaps more troublesome than the southern flank. But still, so these issues are there. There are rising nations in the Indian, Indian Ocean. You have, we know the countries. So, but we need to learn to how to manage that. So, uh, we, have, we are willing to, we, do, we, we want to be a, uh, calming effect on all those tensions, not uh, exacerbating power. Okay. I may follow up with you on that. But I wanted to go back to you, and I think I wanted to quote you. You said, if everything goes per script and with the elections, and I think, I don't know if it's a big if or a small if, and could you walk us through that script? And what are some of the indicators that make you nervous? I think this question is to maybe all three of you. Yeah. And what are some indicators that you feel assured about? <clears throat> the, uh, the, the elections on the 8th of January 2015, the result was a vote for change. It is nothing personal. There was a significant 80% uh, 80, 80 and above voter turnout, which is the highest for a long time. So that's an indicator the country wants change and is going for change. So it's not business as usual. Secondly, the last eight months or nine months has seen a great deal of cooperation amongst very many political parties, particularly the parties who need to be working together and sitting together in a national government post the general election. So it's a small if. And there is a general commitment on what they wish to achieve. Uh, so there is a certain de considerable degree of intelligence, sobriety in the way they are transacting business. If you look at some of the public pronouncements of some of the political parties, uh, it's an indicator that people are going to middle ground rather than on the right or the left. Uh, I think, is that sufficient? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, 
Well, I think I'll leave it to civil society to civil respond to that. <laughs> I, I like to no listen comment. to what she has to say. I have no comment on that. <laughs> um, please, just please wait for the mic. Tessie Schaefer, um, at McLarty Associates in Brookings and a former U.S. ambassador to Sri Lanka. And it's always a pleasure to hear from Prasad Karyavasam and an unusual pleasure to hear from him at the same time as the two civil society representatives. I'd like to attempt what may be impossible, which is to bring together the two parts of this, uh, this morning's conversation. Uh, the international order in South Asia, this maritime vision in which India obviously figures importantly because it's in the middle of South Asia and it's big. Um, and the internal challenge that Sri Lanka has faced for many, many years uh, of reconciliation. And my question is, how much do you think that Sri Lanka's ability effectively to pursue this larger vision, to work with the internal and external forces that are important in creating a stable Indian Ocean region, um, is going to be influenced by its ability to move forward on the much more internally contentious issue of reconciliation? Uh, I think uh, in your question, there is an answer as well. Um, the government, uh, any democratic government, has to works on the basis of public demands from them. So the current very clearly public demand in Sri Lanka is two things. They are demanding, one, a quick peace dividend that they can feel touching them. Uh, now, since 2009, we have peace, physical peace in the country, and we grew very well. We grew perhaps, uh, not perhaps, we grew over 7.5%, sometimes 8, 78 for five years, but a lot of that uh, development was on infrastructure, big infrastructure projects. Uh, and it didn't trickle down to the average persons to kind of enjoy a better life and then perhaps people want to change their home. And that's the change that came in January. So that's very clearly Sri Lankan people wants internal progress first which includes reconciliation, because that's peace dividend for everybody. So that becomes priority. But then we can't live in isolation. We are living in a region. Our connectivity to the world is all sea-based. So sea around us should be stable. So if you are thinking long, even medium term, not let alone long term, we need to work with whoever who is working with us towards uh, peaceful maritime domain around us, so that then we will benefit from this resource. So this is the kind of uh, answer that I have, but, uh, so, but governments therefore priorities to first to set the home in order, but not neglecting unique, you are connected to the world through sea. I hope I answered Daisy. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Jay Kinsara, Director of Government Relations for the Hindu American Foundation. My question is for both of the ambassadors as well as civil society leaders. The 
you've mentioned Prime Minister Narendra Modi and, and hope for his success in India, but he also visited Sri Lanka, and he also, in that trip, he made a landmark visit to Jaffna in the northern province. And the Chief Minister Justice Vigneswaran asked for a devolution of powers in Sri Lanka, giving more authority to the provinces, and asked that the that India be a guarantor of of this <clears throat> process. Uh, can you explain the government's uh, game plan to ensure that that happens, as and also civil society's <clears throat> role in ensuring that this is part of the reconciliation process? Thank you. You want to go first? I go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I can only offer a comment in terms of what's been discussed. I think that we've got something called the, the current devolution mechanism flows out of the 13th Amendment, which was enacted in 1987. So 20 plus years hence, it's only natural that one needs to look at it. The way it kind of gets into arguments is what is called the concurrent list. The suggestion is that we dispense with this concurrently. It's either the center is in control or it has no authority. So dispensing with the concurrent list and then being very clear as to what the center can control and decide on, what the province can control and decide on is the way forward. Uh, that essentially is what needs to be nailed on the table, which is probably what will be discussed. That and further downstream, the the post-independent constitution had a constitutional safeguard on minority rights. Then it had a few variations. Now it doesn't. So some kind of safeguard needs to be brought back online. But I'd like to also close by saying, uh, with, no, I spoke about minorities in my speech, but one cannot be a perpetual minority in a country. One should not be. One should be within a group but with equal access to resources and legitimacy and claims to power. If you can walk in that direction, I think we would have found the answer. Uh, if I may add, we have a constitution with now uh, hopefully 20th amendment soon. So it's, we are still process of, in that sense, building the nation's structure. If you take this country, we have, we have 27 amendments, so you know, we are 20, we have some more to go. Um, so uh, we are still you know, uh, building, the, building the nation in terms of what is the best constitutional model that is best for the countries, all the regions and all groups. Sri Lanka, there is a debate going on, given the size of Sri Lanka, given the demographic, demographic distribution, sharing power both at the center and the periphery is equally important is one argument. Another argument is that uh, uh, total uh, federal model. So that debate will go on and how that will, um, that will be uh, also work parallel with what's called reconciliation process, which is also requires two sides. You have to reconcile you with, with the, with each other. So it's a process that will go on and having a discourse about that with uh, everybody and with external interested parties is something we welcome. But uh, how we go about it, we have 13th Amendment as he explained and we have to make it work first and then see how it will, how, how the reconciliation process can contribute towards great better arrangements. 
So it's a, uh, it's not a, there's no one answer for that. One thing that you need to very clearly recognize here is in Sri Lanka, communities are very mixed in the country. If you take Colombo city, Colombo city has more Tamils and Muslims than Sinhalese. Most Tamils live outside northern province. Large chunk of Tamils live in central province of Sri Lanka, very large group. Muslims, you know, so therefore we have to, we cannot exactly replicate the Indian model in Sri Lanka. It's not that Sri Lanka is looking at its own model that is best for each and every citizen of Sri Lanka, irrespective of their ethnicity or religion, enjoy equal rights, justice and equality. I think we will get there as long as there is give and take on all sides. So we are very hopeful. We encourage discussion, but uh, we have to still run a little further to get there. That's, that's how I look at it. Narendra Modi said the same thing. When everybody asked him, what is the Gujarat model? He said, there is no Gujarat model. The Gujarat model is there is no model. What works in one district in Gujarat does not work in the other district in Gujarat. So we have to find a way that each district has its own model. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate for allowing me the privilege to ask question. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, they have very good cricket teams. And when any team wins, the entire nation celebrates in a way as if this nation doesn't have any problem. That's a common thing amongst these four countries. Uh, you mentioned about the uh, visit of uh, uh, Secretary of State Kerry. And uh, Sri Lanka had always been a non-aligned country. Uh, they're only aligned to their own interest, and that's naturally national interest. Uh, and you mentioned that they, they have decided and defined some common goals and will be working closely with it. Is there any possibility, or do you foresee, since uh, USA is looking for more partners when it comes to security issues and uh, to sign security pacts, does Sri Lanka and USA has the potential to sign a security pact and uh, how it will affect uh, the uh, non-alliance of uh, Sri Lanka. Thank you. Uh, I don't, in my understanding, neither Sri Lanka nor US is looking at security pacts with each other. Um, there is, uh, but what we have in common is that we, we are have in common is that we are we want to work together to ensure maritime domain remains peaceful and uh, it remains conducive for international commerce, that it does, it's not become a theater of conflict that will disrupt oil supply, 80% of world oil supply goes through there. So we, we have those interests in common. And uh, in, in case that some people talk about uh, South Asian uh, or Indian Ocean security architecture in the in maritime domain. Now that's a that's a ideal objective that has to be uh, think through very carefully um, because there are um, maritime powers in our region. There are extra regional maritime powers. There are so uh, I think it's too premature to go that far, but um, but it should be a cooperative enterprise not a bilateral enterprise. Uh, because if you do a bilateral um, deal, uh, it doesn't, um, it, it creates more tension rather than adds to uh, stability. So stability is the key for us. 
Uh, we are right in the middle and if there is instability in Indian Ocean, we, we, we will choke ourselves. So, we are very conscious of that. Mark Schleifer at the Center for International Private Enterprise. <clears throat> uh, my question is to the Ambassador. Thank you very much for your remarks. My question actually, I think, goes right to the heart of what you were just uh, talking about, but, but maybe um, lays bare some of the uh, underlying issues. Um, I think after the, after the big election uh, in January, the pause button was hit on the Colombo port deal, um, and I think that was very heartening for uh, a number of observers, let's say here in Washington DC, but the pause button appears to have been released now, uh, according to what I've read recently in the papers. Um, how do you see uh, your government's role vis-a-vis uh, -vis relations with China and its ambitions in the Indian Ocean um, playing out in the Colombo port deal? Um, the extent to which you can comment on that would be much appreciated. I think, uh, let me clarify, I, I'm not too sure whether your question is uh, what you meant. Colombo port is one issue. Colombo port city is another issue. Colombo port is a running port. There is no issue. There is, um, we have extended the port now to a, a what's called Colombo South Port, which is a deep water, new deep water terminal, two terminals. One is already operational. Another one is going to be on stream soon. That is, uh, uh, there is no issue on that. Everybody is using and we welcome that uh, port becoming a very efficient trans, transshipment hub in the region. It is the biggest, but we want to make it bigger. Um, so that's one issue. On that, we have uh, no issue with anyone else and there has not been a local issue even. But next to Colombo came what is called Colombo Port City Project, which was reclaiming, reclaiming large tracts of land from sea and uh, building a kind of a city. That's the issue with China, a particular Chinese company put in uh, agreed to put in about $3 billion something. Now that is on hold at this point, nothing against, not, it's on hold primarily on the basis of environmental concerns. Environmental impact assessment has not been properly obtained. So on that basis it's on hold un, until EIA is properly done. So there is no clearance for that. But it is a not a, we don't consider it a bilateral issue. We consider this our issue, local issue for Sri Lanka, because we should be, we, the government feels, government and the people of Sri Lanka must be convinced that the new project does not harm the environment around Colombo Port and the Gulf Coast Green Area, which is a very important for Sri Lanka's tourist development. So that's where things are. With regard to your next part of the question, with regard to China's aspirations in the Indian Ocean, that of course I don't know, you had to ask from Chinese. Uh, as far as we see is that China is not a very big player in the Indian Ocean uh, Sea. There are other big players. China may be an emerging power in the Indian Ocean, but not very big in the Indian Ocean. For us, China is a very good uh, commercial trading partner and a resource for financing of projects and a certain capacity to deliver, pro, uh, deliver, uh, deliver projects very quickly. And we leave it at that. And as far as we are concerned, uh, we don't 
uh, we are working with every country in the world, our friends, and we consider them friends on the basis of mutually exclusive project-based um, um, connections rather than any zero-sum assessment of our relations. That's how we, we look at it. We want to use all resources for the betterment of our people and, and for the region. I just, I just wanted to take that on and follow up. But I think the most recent issue here is the TPP, uh, the free trade agreements. And I think we were having a chat yesterday. What are your views? And you know, there is, I've been reading that you may lose out to Vietnam, at least in the short to medium term, countries like smaller countries like Vietnam, which may have a huge impact. Um, and that may have a real impact inside Sri Lanka. For example, the apparel business, um, might, people might be put out of jobs. But are there positives that you could see? Yeah. Uh, TPP, of course, uh, is a very ambitious uh, trade regime, and we welcome that as a right, it's going in the right direction in terms of uh, integrating world trade. Uh, if, if, as you rightly said, the countries like Vietnam joining TPP will, uh, will uh, be challenging for us uh, in terms of our own trade regimes with US and other countries. So this is something that we'll have to work on. But of course, um, TPP is not a closed door regime. There is all, there is a, it's, it says that others can join, uh, but on the terms that is already agreed. Um, and uh, it will be a good template to, uh, for the world trade. And maybe others, are, others will be forced to join. Um, it will be like a multi-fiber agreement. For instance, I remember the debate in Sri Lanka when the multi-fiber agreement was, uh, was being concluded, being uh, phased out, that uh, we will lose our market in US, it didn't happen. We adjust ourselves and mm -hmm. we increase our market share. So same thing uh, will be required by uh, trading uh, regimes, but it's a challenging issue, it's a challenge. And we'll have to study uh, the closest that we can think of as similar to us is Vietnam. So that's why Vietnam is important. If Vietnam, and people will ask questions from us, if Vietnam can join TPP, why can't you join? But then. It, it's a threshold of the uh, requirement locally is very high, very high, very high threshold. And uh, that will require major reform of our local um, systems. So each country, if they want to think of uh, joining TPP, will have to uh, um, uh, embark upon major, major reforms, uh, economic reforms. So that remains a challenge. But let, let's wait and, wait and see. It's too early to, uh, we don't know the shape of T, TPP as yet. Uh, and then we'll take it from there. I have the gentleman there. Thank you for your comments. My name is Vasu Mohan. I work with the International Foundation for Election Systems. I worked very closely with the Election Commission of Sri Lanka for the last 10 years on the voter registry. I have um, a quick comment and a question. I'll keep it very brief. Um, there is this sort of mistaken notion in discourse that if we focus on the economy, everything else will be okay. Um, and we simply know that that's not true. And even in the case of India, you know, as, as well as India is doing, 80% um, of the people live below the poverty line. There's 40% domestic violence abuse, 236 districts, since you like statistics. Uh, one third of uh, the districts of India are under Naxalite control. So clearly, you know, despite the economic growth, there are some deep-seated issues in India as well. So my question for uh, you and the other colleagues also is, 
while it's important to focus on the economic prosperity of Sri Lanka as it is for any other part, the sort of the deep uh, issues that are still in place in the country in terms of reconciliation, in terms of uh, justice and issues of peace, I think some of these things are just not being addressed enough in the discourse. Uh, if, I mean, in currently in Sri Lanka, it's all about corruption, it's all about holding people accountable relating to corruption issues, and it's all about economic growth. Very important. Um, should there not also be more conversation about some more deep-seated uh, issues? I take your point that Tamils don't all live in one area. They're spread all over the country, which makes it even more important to uh, talk about. So I'm very interested in hearing your views, uh, Ambassador, and the other colleagues as well, about this issue. What more substantively can and should be done to uh, look at this issue of reconciliation? I'll go first. I'll join after yeah. you finish. I'll I, I think in the interest of time, I'll try to be very brief. The challenge we face is that because histories are long, I mean, we say we are histories over 2,500 years, so we are talking about 30 plus years of conflict. Nevertheless, that hangs heavy on us. While that is true, there is heaviness in the baggage, the issues which are in the bag are issues of justice, equality, fair treatment, which should be across the board afforded to everybody. So I think uh, some course corrections recalibrations in terms of our systems is what is required. That's the challenge. So without making it a minority issue, a regional issue, that this is a center state issue afforded to all under the constitution. Uh, that's the challenge on the table. We don't lack the knowledge. It's about finding political agreement. Do, do people disagree? Absolutely not. No. It's about politics agreeing and just nailing it down. Reconciliations very important. President, I mentioned that in my opening remarks. <coughs> President himself told security forces, development is not in our development and reconciliation. So that's the that's the slogan. Reconciliation rec has several elements to it. One is little long term, which we talked about devolution of power, sharing of power. We, we like to call devolution is not the sharing of power. Devolution and sharing of power. Uh, how we get there and what's that, that's one. Then there are immediate issues. Let's say very immediate issue is like missing persons, detainees. These are immediate serious issues. Now, government is, has done things already on that. We are working with ICRC. ICRC is in Colombo and we will soon go further on that. You will hear that I cannot announce uh, now, but at this point, if there's a, anyone who has a missing person, can go to ICRC in Colombo and ask questions and they will help because ICRC has access to each and every detention, detention center and a prison in Sri Lanka. They have. They have been given access now. They, they meet every week with the Solicitor General, but they are professionals. They do it in a certain manner. They don't publish lists. They only help those who are really affected. Of course, in, in, a, in a discourse like in Sri Lanka, there are people who have pseudo claims. Some people who are living in Canada may be missing in Sri Lanka. You know, that sort of thing we can't avoid. That, those things happen. But real genuine cases in Sri Lanka has a remedy now. That's one. 
I can go on, right? What we have done. Uh, there was a lease of land uh, um, uh, that army was uh, um, uh, using. That has happened. Large tracks have been released. In fact, one track that has been released has led to some difficulty to me personally because when I was in Delhi, we set up the we signed the agreement to have a coal power plant with India, and there was some land given to the Indian company. Now that land, this government gave back to the IDPs, so the, that that coal power plant is now in limbo. So, uh, but then government therefore took reconciliation priority than the development. So, in the rather than sitting up the coal, coal power plant, reconciliation was chosen, and the land was given back to the IDPs. So things are happening on the ground. Actually, so many things are happening that you can't even, if I start listing, I'll be speaking for one hour. Thank you. My name is Sean Donnelly from the U.S. Council for International Business. And I'm, like many, I think, delighted to see the agenda of reconciliation and human rights and political reform moving forward in Sri Lanka. My question is both to the ambassador and to the civil society representatives. Um, where do international organizations like the Human Rights Commission or the ambassador mentioned the ICRC fit into this and or can it be done purely domestically? I mean, this has obviously been a source of some contention under the previous government, but what, what role do you see for uh, organizations like the Human Rights Commission in the UN system for, in Sri Lanka going forward? Thanks. Very briefly. Uh, we, uh, should, should I answer? Uh, the new government has very clearly stated that they are going to work with international actors bilaterally and multilaterally. That includes Human Rights uh, Office of the Human High Commissioner for Human Rights. That's happening. Um, that's happening. It's ongoing. Uh, of course, uh, there's going to be a report uh, that will come up in uh, September. Uh, when that comes out. Um, We'll have to decide as to how we should handle that. But there are only one criteria that government has um, very clearly stated that we, the government, will set up domestic mechanisms to address all issues that are outstanding in terms of accountability, missing persons, and we'll seek cooperation and advice from those who have the competence and experience to do so with Sri Lanka. So that is on stream. And ICRC is very clearly involved in missing persons because for our mind, that's the best professional group that we can think of and they know how it should be done. So we follow the advice actually. And that's why, uh, but uh, it will, uh, more will, will come, uh, will, will be around. Uh, in the meantime, there are many, um, uh, I mean, uh, then, uh, so that's where things stand at this point. We are willing to, and we are, um, even with the United States, we have certain uh, programs that we are developing at this point. I have four last questions on the interest of time. Each of you keep your questions to 30 seconds because we have two minutes, and the responses to 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Caitlin Wolford. I'm with Podesta Group, and we work with the Tamil American Peace Initiative. And you mentioned earlier a lot of the promises that the government has kept, but I'm, I'm wondering why certain areas are seeing huge delays. The government hasn't released any information on political prisoners. A lot of, a fraction of the land that needs to be returned has been returned. 
Um, okay, sure. And why demilitarization is taking such a long time? So if right. anyone First, wants to comment uh, on that. So I have short political prisoners. Yes, we are not releasing because ICRC advised not to do that. We are not, we you know, uh, we are, the detainees are not, lists are not released. Yes, you are right. Because that's the advice. We, we work on a particular set of criteria. Uh, there are no political prisoners as such. We don't have political prisoners anymore. We only have prisoners with, uh, with certain charges against them. If not, uh, they are released. So, word political prisoners does not apply to Sri Lanka anymore. Second thing, um, uh, you mentioned about the land release is happening. It's happening. It's, it's, I just mentioned that, what happened. But we have to cancel the Indian power plant uh, project because we, land was given to uh, IDPs. Because IDP lands taken over and then put up a plant, now gone back. So it's happening. Uh, but things, you cannot uh, do anything overnight. It's a process. Am I right? Yeah, hi. Um, Jeeva Permapilaya Sex, Sri Lankan citizen. Uh, I just wanted to ask, I mean, and thank you for the, and I've been living in Sri Lanka for the last couple of months, uh, having lived abroad for quite a, some time. But one of the things I've noticed is that I think things, are, you know, you said things do take time, and I think that there is a, I mean, time also contributes to the reconciliation process. So I think that, you know, things needs to be expedited. Just a comment from the... I think that, uh, especially the d domestic reconciliation process, what is it? I think the Sri Lankan citizens really don't know what it is. I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing about the ICRC, for example. Secondly, what's the role of the diaspora? Because I think that's really, really important. I mean, they were the victims of the war, but I really don't see enough of trying to bring them in. Um, you know, no, I'm, 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 it, I've been living in Sri Lanka for the last couple of months. And I just want to know what your views are and the human rights point of view also, because there the are many groups. Yeah, okay, right, okay. Hi, I'm, I'm Lexi Van Buskirk. I'm an intern with the Hudson Institute across the street. My question is actually very similar. I was wondering, um, you said you're doing a lot domestically and with the ICRC. I was wondering if the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, a la the African continent that are done through the United Nations, are part of what you are looking at doing for reconciliation and um, if so, what you'd like that sort of framework to look like for the future? Oh, sorry. Yes, hello. Um, <clears throat> Miriam Young with the U.S. Council on Sri Lanka, and I'll try to shorten my question because it's somewhat similar to some of the previous ones. Um, I would just like to ask in terms of the militarization of the, particularly the northern province, if you are very um, committed to reconciliation, how can that go forward given the intense presence of the military and um, very public statements given that that is not going to change? Thank you. I don't know. Well, first, uh, I think, first, I'll start with you, Mariam. Uh, militarization, I, I we look at very differently from that. Uh, we, uh, we think uh, security forces are present in all provinces in some numbers that will be there like any country in the world. Uh, but what we are doing in the northeast, their involvement in the civilian affairs uh, are making it, we are trying to we are making it zero almost. Already it's happening, but it will happen. They will not be part of the civilian life anymore. They will be in their camps like uh, 
the we had elephant pass camp for last maybe 40 60 years things like that so the security forces will be in throughout the country in their camps doing their legitimate business of uh, so that's all what's happening so militarization i don't think our society is anymore militarized that's one uh, then second thing is that um, uh, with regard to uh, a question of diaspora government is very interested in doing that foreign minister announced that he wants to have a diaspora festival but at the moment everybody is focusing on uh, on uh, elections parliamentary elections and i would welcome that uh, uh, engagement of uh, Sri Lankan some groups who are little unfriendly towards us to with me at least so that we have a conversation uh, but instead uh, they are um, they are working through some groups here and and and, uh, and uh, not uh, reaching out to us but reaching out to the Congress but uh, they can talk to me and then we can have a conversation we welcome that but there is already GTF and our foreign minister met in London Global Tamil Forum and, and TNA. So there, is, there, is, there was a very good discussion there. So things are happening. Uh, so I, I don't say, I don't accept exactly this discussion is not taking place, but it's happening in bits and pieces. So maybe time will come to expand it in a structured manner after the, after the elections. Um, what's the other question? Um, um, yeah, that we are, we are, at the moment there is, we are discussing as to what, what's the best model that we could use in terms of, um, in terms of um, uh, accountability issues. So uh, that is a dis ongoing discussion. Um, what, and we have uh, idea that uh, it may take little more time because election is intervening. Uh, but it's, it's very much discussion is on with uh, stakeholders. And uh, there will be some announcement in time to come. Um, and uh, so that's, that's where things are. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we are very, 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 very keen that we, uh, we take, follow the path that we have taken, for instance, uh, um, military involved northern province reducing day by day. And, and then we are, um, we are also handling the issue of missing persons in a manner that uh, those who really are affected have a, have a window to, uh, to go through and then find solutions. So things like that are happening in the ground. And we have seen on the ground uh, a, a kind of paradigm shift on the ground. Just, I think, to add on to what's been said, uh, the, we heard recently from the UN risk coordinator in Sri Lanka that they were offering two types of technical cooperation. One was from their human rights desk officer from the Geneva office, uh, they are discussing some kind of technical cooperation at the moment uh, at one level. At the other level, and that is in terms of part of the credible mechanisms, etc. The second one was uh, some kind of uh, technical cooperation with the Office of National Unity, which is another new uh, institution that's been set up, that's ongoing. Thirdly, what I'd like to also mention, uh, just a early, uh, it's a kind of word of caution, the total number of houses still required for resettlement is about 79,000. It's staggering, and that is uh, about 50,000 plus in the north, north and about 16,000 in the east. east. Now, <clears throat> that is just pure housing. Then the, the connectivity with markets, economics is crucial. With that constituency, if they're not successful, that's a downer on the community, and there'll be uh, considerable negative perceptions. Here we are looking at saying, 
why can't the chief ministers of the north and the east look at the southern Indian states, look at the opportunities in the markets. We need to be looking afresh as we are talking about the seas, as we are talking about markets. The provinces also have a role. The GDP of Tamil Nadu could potentially be 10 times the total GDP of the whole of Sri Lanka. With that kind of market, why aren't you looking? We need to be looking. If you don't do that, there is going to be downsides. It's very great risk. And then we go back again to old stories. Diaspora again, we call, we, some of us have coined it as people of Sri Lankan origin overseas. There are two uh, twin lines going, as the ambassador mentioned. The foreign ministry is talking to diaspora groups. Parallelly, there's another initiative with the finance ministry. We are looking at bettering what China, Turkey, and Indonesia, I think, one of the five, have done with their people overseas. We've picked up the best, and we're working with the finance ministry, which is close to a policy in terms of ensuring that the brain and the talents of Sri Lankans overseas invests itself back in Sri Lanka, technical cooperation invests in Sri Lanka. So a whole new investment portfolio we are hoping to bring online. Uh, and that's the bigger picture. And this is people of Sri Lankan origin overseas, not just one ethnic group. So that's also on the table coming up. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, just to add, uh, I, um, what he said about uh, what chief minister may wish to focus in northern province is something that I, I, I find very attractive what you said that uh, there is uh, perhaps uh, there's a lot more to be done for the war affected uh, people in northern province. But uh, that cannot be done by the government only. You need a uh, little more support from other parties who only talk about uh, perhaps politics of it rather than the economics of helping welfare of the people. So we, I mean, we welcome uh, diaspora if they can contribute towards that um, because we cannot do it uh, on our own uh, and we would welcome that. We would like to facilitate if there's anyone who is willing to help those who need houses. On that note, thank you. Mm -hmm.